This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Waltons, Aluma Trailers, North Dakota Tourism, Federal Ammunition, On X Hunt, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. Today, we're going to take an in-depth look at America's 2022 quail hunting forecast. My guests are Chad Love and Andy Edwards from Quail Forever. They'll explain where hunters can ex- expect to see big cubbies of quail, and places that the drought may have hurt numbers heading into this season. Stick around. All right, here we go. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton, as always, is our producer. And thanks to the power of technology, we are all in different parts of the country right now, Brandon included. And yet we're recording a conversation as if we were sitting in the room together. Depending on where you're hunting or what social media channels you are following, this feels like the year of the pheasant. I mean, my goodness, the reports have been extraordinary during the first few weeks of the year. I genuinely hope that you've been able to get out there and enjoy the rush of the pheasant flush. I've heard from many, many hunters this year. Some of them saying they've never seen this many pheasants. Some of them saying they haven't seen this many pheasants in 20 years. Uh, Limits for 10 plus people on public lands in places like Minnesota and Iowa. Their season just opened. I was in North Dakota last week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation that I had with Tyler. The hunt was extraordinary. It's eye-opening to go out on the prairie in North Dakota, see the migration of ducks and waterfowl that are coming down. And then as you're driving down the road, every field you look at has pheasants. There were times where I'm not exaggerating. I feel like I could have scooped up my limit of roosters just driving gravel roads. There were that many of them. We had to stop for roosters, crossings all the time on the road. It was a beautiful sight, and it was a sight that I long for. It's a sight that I feel like most hunters dream about, you know, and I'm driving east back into my home state of Minnesota, and there are pheasants to be had in Minnesota, but it didn't look nearly the same when I got home, and it was kind of depressing a little bit, wishing I had that. Anyway, um, I guess I'm rambling at this point, but I just, I can't stress that the birds are out there this year and it's been a great start to the hunting season. Uh, The reports from the Dakotas, Montana, Iowa, Minnesota for pheasant hunting has been solid. Today, we're going to get into the quail hunting forecast, which is um, an exciting season that's going to start kicking off around the country. Um, My guests today are from Quail Forever, Andy Edwards and Chad Love. But before I bring them on to help us dissect the quail forecast. I have a story that came in last night from a listener. And if you've listened to this podcast for a while, this story might make you laugh a little bit like it made me laugh. It is from Rick Taxala. I apologize, Rick, if I pronounce your name incorrectly. Tasala, Taxala. Anyway, uh, Rick sent me this message. Good morning. I just wanted to share a quick story that happened last week. I live outside of Milwaukee. I have a one and a half year old wire-haired pointing Griffon. I let him out at nine-ish. 99% of the time he stays in the yard. That night I called for him and he was gone. I went in the house to get my keys to start driving when a car stopped in front of my house and said, are you looking for your dog? 
She said, I just took him to the police station. She said he had no tags. In quotes, Rick says, he did. I said, thanks. Where did you find him? She said, right there, right here. (laughs) She said she stopped and he came up to the curb by her. Mind you, she was parked right in front of my house. I immediately thought of your story. I picked him up and he was running around the dispatch. Truly love your show and podcasts. Anyway, uh, Rick is referring to the story of when somebody came and took my dog out of my yard. So apparently it's not so random because other people do that as well. Um, I've heard from many listeners that have had a similar story, but I never understand why if there's a dog in a yard, somebody picks that dog up and thinks that they need to take it in, drop it off, do something, knock on the door. If you think that it might be that you know, a stray dog, at least check the yard that you took the dog out of. Anyway, thanks for sharing, Rick. Uh, Andy and Chad, do you have any dog stories similar to that where somebody has stolen your dogs? You know, all, all I can think of is that shows the cultural difference from the Midwest to the South. In the South, they pull up in your yard and drop dogs off. They don't, uh, they don't try to get your dog and take it somewhere. So no, speaking from a household where we have one hunting dog and five adopted strays. Um, no, we, we don't have that problem here. I don't think I've ever really had that problem either of someone taking a dog out of my yard where I have had problems. And this is probably a universal with a lot of bird hunters is I've had many people comment on the physical appearance and, and alleged, you know, poor condition of my dogs, uh, specifically that they're too skinny. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know how many conversations I've had with people who are just very concerned that my dogs apparently don't look like a furry egg roll. Uh, you know, and they they just don't really, and you know, that my dogs are working dogs and that they run a lot. And this is, you know, they're in, they're in good shape. Uh, they're, they're not skin. They're not too skinny. I, I do feed them. Uh, so that's really, really where I run into the most, uh, uh, you know, static with, with people on my dogs. Does it make yeah. you then want to say, um, I hate to say this, but your dog is actually a little bit overweight. Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, I, I don't want to have someone punch me in the nose for insulting their dog. But <laughs> a lot of the time people are, are commenting on, on the, the poor physical condition of my dog. I'm looking at theirs and I'm thinking, Hey, you know, yeah. maybe they should hit the dog park a little more often or, you know, something yeah. like that. Because generally speaking, the people who who say that their dogs are range from, you know, mildly overweight to morbidly obese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Andy Edwards, Quail Forever program manager, Chad Love, Quail Forever journal editor are the guests on today's episode. Uh, Chad, let's start with you. Where have you been hunting this year? I know quail season hasn't kicked off yet, but I know that you're a passionate bird hunter and that you've been out in the field. Yeah. So September is usually my prairie grouse season. So I, uh, I, I kicked off the season in New Mexico hunting dusky grouse for the first time, which I had an absolute blast. It put me completely out of my, my frame of reference and my comfort zone. Cause I'm a, I'm a prairie guy. You know, I, I hunt the plains for the most part. And I, I typically, uh, hunt the prairie grouse opener in Nebraska every year, but the past few years it's been super hot and I just wanted to try something different. So I went to New Mexico, uh, you know, ran my dogs in the timber and, you know, up at 10,000 feet and had a blast. Uh, just absolutely fell in love with that topography and the terrain and that bird. And so, uh, um, really had fun doing that. And then a couple weeks late after that, I, I switched 
to prairie grouse and started going to Nebraska. So I took uh, three trips to the Nebraska sand hills this year and uh, hunting sharp tails and prairie chickens. And then I just got back last night, actually, from the Nebraska pheasant and quail opener. And of course, I'm a quail hunter primarily, so I was concentrating on quail. But I uh, went up there this weekend and hunted and and had a good time. Uh, I'm, I only live about four hours away from from southern Nebraska, so I can leave the house at like 3 a.m. And, and, you know, be hunting by 8. So uh, did that and, and had a real good time. Found a few birds, a little bit tougher than I thought it was going to be, but uh, still managed to, to, uh, to have a good time. Nice. Andy, I know you got a few uh, thorns stuck in your eye up in the Northwoods. Where have you been hunting? <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, went to the UP a couple weeks ago. We we kind of came in on the heels of a snowstorm. Actually got in just before the snow hit, and, uh, but, but hunted first couple of days in some pretty deep snow for grouse, and uh, they sat up in the trees and laughed at us. And uh, we then were able to find a spot that didn't have as much snow cover, got into birds, and then the snow melted. So we later in the week um, found uh, both woodcock and grouse. And uh, so had a, had a great time there. And then actually, so most of our seasons aren't in the southeast yet as far as birds. They come in this coming weekend for a lot of states. But uh, our I've got to do a shout out here. Our youth um, deer season was this past weekend. And my 12-year-old Drew was able to get his first deer, a nice nine point. So we were, we were pretty ecstatic about that. And I've had a good weekend working up that deer, and and uh, dreams of of taxidermy mounts ensue. So uh, that, that's kind of been my season so far. Ah, oh, that's awesome! I got to take my nephew out on his first deer hunt. We have a youth season in Minnesota, and that was uh, two weeks ago now, and. My nephew, I sitting right next to him, and then my eight-year-old and six-year-old boys were sitting in the blind with us, and he took his first year, and it was just one of those experiences that I'm positive he'll never forget, but oh, yeah. uh, I won't either. I mean, it was just oh, sharing that with them. Uh, just I have been absolutely in love with bringing the kids out into the field with me hunting the last couple of years, and it just keeps elevating. But I'm congrats to you. And your son on, yeah. on the, the trophy of a lifetime. Hopefully he has many, oh, yeah. many more. Um, Andy, you're yeah. in... What, oh, go ahead. Oh, no. As far as I was going to say, I can't lie that I was really glad it was not a button buck and it was a nine point because, you know, we were probably going to mount whatever it was. And so this actually worked <laughs> out. Like, it was really great. But uh, uh, you were going to say where I'm... I'm in Tennessee, um, I'm yep. about an hour south of Nashville. So Okay. And Chad, where are you at? I am in Woodward, Oklahoma. I uh, I was born and raised in well raised in Norman, but uh, moved up to Woodward, which is in the northwest part of the state. After school, uh, which is kind of the epicenter of of quail hunting in Oklahoma. So I've been here for about uh, twenty twenty five years now. And have quail always been your your love when it comes to upland bird hunting? Yeah, uh, I mean, when you grow up in Oklahoma, um, especially you grow up in Oklahoma in the seventies and eighties during sort of the heyday of, of Oklahoma quail hunting, that's kind of you know your, your thing. And uh, even though I used to be an ardent, you know, three season deer hunter, used to be a very hardcore waterfowl hunter, had chessies. I've had chessies since college, uh, but quail have always been sort of my cornerstone. It's just something I've always done. I I, uh, I started hunting when I was a kid without a dog, just you know, kicking up fence rows, and and have kind of progressed since then. I feel like, you know, there's a lot of pheasant hunters listening to, to this podcast and some of them have quail hunted. Some of them probably have not. Um, if, if you've never done it, <laughs> I mean, like the, 
the explosion of a covey of quail. Like there's something special about a big old gaudy pheasant exploding out of the grass. But when you have, you know, these bumblebees that just explode and they go in every direction, like it only takes one covey rise to hook you. Um, you know, and I encourage somebody to go this year. If, if they're on the, on the fence, you know, should I, shouldn't I, there are places you can hunt pheasants and quail in the same areas. We'll, we'll kind of, uh, do a, a broad scope look across the country here on today's episode. But, um, what is it about the quail Chad that separates that bird from any other game bird in your opinion? Uh, I mean, of course, you, you start getting into the personal with that because uh, it was such a uh, a big part of my childhood. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, it is I, I didn't grow up in, in a pheasant hunting culture. So for me, you know, quail were sort of the bird that I was introduced to uh, when it when it comes to the uplands. It was, you know, the, the only bird that I could hunt. And so, you know, that's that's really what separates it for me. It, and the, the, also the fact that it, it can be a little bit more of a solitary activity. Um, you know, I tend to be a little bit more of a, uh, of a solitary hunter, you know, just myself and, and a dog or two and pheasant hunting is a little bit more, at least, I mean, in the Southeast, I think it's quail hunting culture is a lot more social. Uh, but for me growing up, uh, you know, it was, it was just more of a, of an individual sort of pastime. And I think pheasant hunting is probably a little bit more, uh, a little bit more social like that. Uh, like for example, this weekend when I was up in Nebraska, Nebraska is one of those states where you 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 often and actually a lot of times do will find quail and pheasants on the same hunt, and uh, so it, it gives me a really unique opportunity to 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 interact with pheasant hunters in, in a in a in a sense that I, I don't typically do, and uh, it's interesting. I, I, a lot of them had a. Um, you know, and I, I'm a gregarious hunter when I'm out in the field. And so like, I'll stop and talk to people. And, and a lot of them were surprised that I was quail hunting, you know, on opening weekend of the, the pheasant and, and quail opener. And I could tell some of them sort of had a curiosity about it. Um, but they, you know, it's just like, I, I'm surprised by the number of pheasant hunters who live in pheasant states who don't actively quail hunt. They should give it a try sometime because it can be very addictive. Well, I find that interesting. Well, I mean, I think of them like... I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I love the quail explosion so much that I would probably be doing what you're doing, Chad, and chasing specifically for quail. Um, when you say that you're hunting for quail, not pheasants, explain how you're approaching that in Nebraska, where where somebody would say, why are you hunting over there and not for pheasants? Yeah. So, it, you know, in when you're specifically targeting pheasants, you know, I, I mean, a quail is not a pheasant. They are very different birds. They have different habitat requirements. And Andy could speak much better to this than, than I can. But, uh, um, you know, when I'm looking for quail in a place like Nebraska, I'm looking for, uh, you know, I'm not going to be hunting stubble fields. I'm not going to be hunting, uh, hunting uh, standing corn. I mean, you can find fe- uh, quail in, in those areas sometimes out feeding, but they're going to be close to any kind of like brushy cover, you know, quail are, are as, as Andy and the biologist will tell you, are, are a very brush oriented bird, you know, woody kind of cover. And so what I'm looking for when I'm going to Nebraska, which is, you know, as much a, or probably more of a pheasant state than a quail state, I'm looking for like those little draws, um, that can't be farmed, you know, that can't be put into production that are, mm-hmm. have a bunch of sand plum thickets in it, you know, some native prairie, weedy forbs, you know, 
trees, stuff like that. And so, and the, and the way that I hunt Nebraska is I, I drive around and I look for those places that pheasant hunters probably don't really want to hunt or, you know, don't think to hunt. And, and those quail will actually utilize same things like CRP fields and corn fields and, and other crop fields, but they kind of tend to, uh, stick fairly close to those, those draws. Andy, what is it about the woody cover that attracts quail? Well, I, you know, I think Chad's pretty much articulated kind of all the things that we would think of as biologists. And, and that is really kind of why those quail are going to be around those areas, particularly in the, in the fall to winter months, they're going to stick close to, um, shrubby cover, not, not necessarily trees. You know, we're talking low growing, Shrub cover, plums, sand plums, sumac in the southeast, um, even even briar thickets, that sort of thing, where they're going to have uh, the best opportunity to avoid predation. They have overhead cover, but they can still move around underneath those areas of woody um, shrub cover. Uh, I, I use I'm going to use it again, Chad. We've been on a, uh, a recording already, but we would call quail a, a, a shrub obligate. They're basically, you know, tied very closely to that shrubby cover, more so even than grassland or or tree cover. When it comes to food specific to, I know it changes throughout the country, but what is a key food source for bob whites in the Midwest, the South, the East, and then we'll get into other quail species uh, further west, but let's start with bob whites. What are they mostly feeding on this time of year and throughout the hunting season? Yeah, th- this time of year and throughout the hunting season is going to be, of course, different from the summer. But um, you know, small grains uh, and and particularly, you know, fairly small seeds. A lot of times, it's a native seed. You might think, you know, they're oh, they're in the soybeans or they're in the, you know, they're in the sorghum, and they and they will do certainly. Um, you know, use those as a resource if they have them. But um, small seeds like beggar weed, um, trefoils, those those really small stick tights. We would we would say uh, they love those, and um, they will they will certainly seek those out if they can find them. Um, and that's what we're going to probably key in on the southeast as much as anything. How about how about the kind of plain states, Chad? What are they picking on there? Uh, I I. I always look for things like it's kind of the same thing. Uh, this time of year, it's going to be primarily small, small seeds and forbs and things like that. I always look for ragweed. Um, mm-hmm. I always look for for croton or doveweed. Um, mm-hmm. Another one that I really key in on a lot, and if I find stands of it that are are fairly thick, I always hunt it is is prairie sunflower uh, because it it also I mean it has that small seed that quail prefer. It's like you know I right. have quail that have corn in their crops. I don't, I, I have no idea how they get that big old corn kernel down their tiny little beaks, but they do, you know, corn and, and sorghum, but they seem like, as, as Andy said, I think they seem to prefer those small native forbs. And whenever I find like a, a prairie sunflower stand, they have a really small seed you know, a very small sunflower seed. And it also offers them a little bit of vertical cover as well. Um, and so anytime that I see something like that, I'll, I'll always hunt it. Um, <clears throat> When you look at, uh, you know, quail specific to pheasants, you know, like a pheasant hunter, there's certain times of the day when they're going to be out in the field. And there's certain times of the day, when I say the field, they're going to be out in, you know, 
a, a picked soybean field or a picked right. corn Crop field or sunflowers. You know, there there's times that you want to target them in the grass, in the roost areas that they're going to be. The golden hour obviously is is a special time. When it comes to quail, though, when is the best time to target them in those woody areas versus when they're going to be out in the open or out in the grass? Andy, you want to take this one? Or? <laughs> I would say. I would never stray too far. I would never stray over a couple hundred yards from the shrubby cover. Most, most often I, they're not as mobile as pheasants and, uh, you know, pheasant may, may fly half a mile to go feed or something like that. You know, quail are going to stick pretty close to home and they're going to be fairly close to that, um, habitat interface where you've got, maybe it's grass cover and shrub cover, uh, and crop cover, all those things kind of mixed in together. They're going to, they're going to always be within a couple hundred yards of that woody woody cover yeah and and, and actually uh, me hunting this weekend in nebraska uh was a perfect example of exactly what andy's talking about so i early in the mornings um i typically will find quail within they will be out in the crp fields uh or or, our native prairie fields but they stay fairly close to those brushy draws so they'll be out and feeding and you know, and I've taken pictures of my dogs on point uh, on quail and video actually out in the CRP field, and it looks like well, this is just a CRP field. It looks like it looks like pheasant cover, and it is. And those those quail will utilize that, but they're never very far from those draws. You know, they and they uh, they they won't stray very far. You know, I don't think I've ever found a covey of quail uh, probably more than and two or three hundred yards away from some type of shrubby cover. Well, that's good advice for people that are potentially going to be in cover that might have both pheasants and quail. Um, I know a lot of pheasant hunters that they're like, they have a specific times of the year when they head further south to get into quail country. Um, you know, up here, the further north you go, crops play a big part in the best times of the hunting season to plan trips to go after pheasants. Uh, do crops play into... Uh, pheasant or I'm sorry, quail, uh, plans like they do for pheasants or when the season opens, it's good or the same throughout opening day all the way through the end. You know, I think regionally for us in the Southeast, no, the crops traditionally are out by, by the time the season comes in, they're almost always out anyway. And I would say if, if you're thinking about areas that might be hit a little harder, um, you want to get in there pretty early. And uh, so it wouldn't depend too much on crop cover or residue, but more so on pressure. Yeah, so same same out here. I you know I will I will find quail around things like a, a harvested sorghum field, things like that. But what's much more important, I think, you know, to me anyway, in finding quail, are is the presence of native forbs and, and cover. You know, if you if you have the adequate cover and if you have that that native food source. Uh, I think that's what quail are probably going to uh, key in on more than uh, than any certain you know type of crop. Gotcha. Well, let's jump right into the report then. Um, Chad, you spent a lot of time putting this together. I don't even know how many hours it takes to cover the entire country and put this forecast together. Um, it is available on quailforever.org. On the landing page, you'll see a link to the 2022 quail hunting forecast. You guys do a great job. Just like the pheasant hunting forecast, you can hover over a state 
And you really got a good breakdown of what to expect when you go there. Lots of pieces of information. Um, I think hunters looking to plan trips across the country for quail or pheasants, it it would do them well to jump on the Pheasants Forever website, jump on the Quail Forever website, and take a look at the information that's provided there. In addition to that, there's a lot of biologists that are working on the ground that are very knowledgeable. And I'd, I've not come across any that haven't been willing to offer some information to say, you know, this area had a couple of, you know, bad storms. This area had extra dry conditions, whatever it might be for whatever bird. But the information that you guys provide is very valuable and I trust it. So I tell people all the time to go to your website and then talk to a biologist find an area. They're going to send you to good places. Would you guys agree with that? Um, add anything to that? Oh, yeah, yeah oh, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, Chad's got the the, the knowledge on kind of the areas that maybe you have to work a little harder here and there. But for the most part, our, our state partner biologists are really great. And we have a lot of staff now out on the ground. And I'd absolutely agree, Travis. I think it's a little different than somebody looking for the best deer hunting spot, you know, People that hunt small game are typically pretty sharing with their information. They might not give you an exact uh, drop pin, but mm-hmm. they, you know, they might say, "Well, this area of the state or this wildlife management area had good had good numbers this year," and so go go figure it out here. Um, and but I think, like you said, even contacting them by email or something, um, they appreciate that. They kind of like being being asked for you know a resource. Yeah. And, and also, you know, the information, the, the specific local information that they provide is oftentimes the, the type of sort of like, and I hate to use the, the popular term, the, the type of granular information that, that the forecast can't provide. You know, the forecast is really sort of a, a macro view and it really mm-hmm. sort of s- mostly speaks in sort of generalizations and regional uh, generalizations. And quail are such a spotty species in terms of of, you know, where they're doing well here versus where they're not so doing well there. It's kind of like the old saw about all politics being local, all quail habitat is going to be local. And so, you know, even within those regions where generally, you know, the, the forecast is going to either be positive or, or perhaps negative, there are going to be areas within that region where you can find birds, but you have to access and probably the best resource for accessing that would be to get on the QF website, find the local QF biologist, and just talk to them. Because as, as Andy said, they're going to be very willing to share that knowledge and to, to mm-hmm. kind of point you in the right direction and give you an idea of, of how things are in their region. With that mm-hmm. being said, um, Chad, after putting this together, you know, you've done this for a few years now. What, what do you think the general outlook is for quail hunters in America this year? What should it be? Is it optimism? Is it... You know, what, what's it, what's the theme? What are you seeing? It, well, I mean, it's, it's hard to really generalize because quail are such a, a widespread. And of course there are six different species, but it's, you know, they, they sort of span the continent. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to make generalizations, generalizations about one region versus another one. But overall, I think that it, it looks a lot like last year, actually, you know, the, in the Southeast, um, all across, you know, the, the biggest chunk of the Southeast had a fairly mild winter and in areas where, where habitats present, they seem to have, seem to have had a, a pretty decent hatch, uh, in my neck of the woods, it's a little bit more complicated. You know, there are some areas of, of the, the plain States where, 
um, they got pretty decent rain. And then there are other areas of the Plain States where it's pretty, pretty darn dry right now. And so, but overall, I think that it's, I would, I mean, I'm always optimistic. I mean, you know, you, you're, you can't find birds unless you get out and, and look for them. And so it's like, I would never, uh, discourage anyone to, to, to not get out and travel and, and go find birds. So I, I'm fairly optimistic about the season there. You're just going to have to work for them. But then, I mean, that holds true every year. I mean, quail are one of those birds that you really have to kind of do your homework on. And I think that if someone does their homework and goes to a, um, a, you know, a region that, uh, has the, the potential to, to give them some birds that they'll do well. So I would, I would, I'm half glass full kind of guy when it comes to quail. So, uh, so I guess, uh, I would, I would categorize myself as, as being fairly optimistic about the season. Um, when you put this forecast together, can you explain kind of what information you're gathering, who's getting it, how they're getting it, and then how it comes into you before you put this forecast together? I mean, because yeah. like when we talked about the pheasant forecast, I mean, there's roadside surveys. How do you get your information about quail? So, so generally what we do is, is, and of course I, I can't do the whole thing by myself because we had, I think we've had something like 28 or 29 States this year. So, so I enlist the help of, you know, sort of a network of freelance writers, but also I, I, I very heavily lean on, on our, our, our QF staff. Uh, so I will ask some of them to, to write some of the stories. Uh, I will ask, you know, the, the, the people in the specific States for their opinion, because their insights, you know, is, is obviously going to be uh, much more informed than than mine is, and so basically, what I do is is I just uh, give them sort of a, a a template of questions to ask that kind of covers the, the 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 gamut of you know things like what were weather conditions like you know this past year, uh, what were the results of any the, with roadside surveys or whistle counts or things like that. It's a little bit more complicated with on the quail side because a lot of a lot of the roadside surveys and the 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 call counts and things like that come after the um, the uh, forecast is is published. So there's a little bit of a of a an air of nebulousness about it because you you know there's a lot of the information isn't in yet, but you can sort of make some broad generalizations about things. And so a, after that, uh, they they go out they they gather that information and I, I collate it and we we put it on the website. It's the calm before the Thanksgiving rush. Now's the time to get all of your Turkey Day essential shopping done at Walton's during their pre-Thanksgiving sale. From their 7 and 11 pound stuffers to the number 12 grinder and 600 pound scale, they are all deeply discounted. The number 22 grinder that John Tremblay and the Walton's team uses in all their videos, yep, it's $100 off. Must have accessories such as suction cup feet, waterproof thermometers, and hog ring pliers have been marked down too. Take an amazing $100 off Walton's 50-pound mixer and get the heavy shopping out of the way right now before turkey season. If you order now through November 16th, Walton's guarantees that your purchases will arrive before Thanksgiving. So check out the pre-Thanksgiving sale today at waltons.com. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I use it on every hunt. Seriously, every hunt. Their app tells me everything I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that we can all legally hunt on. The app also shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. 
It tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land or federal lands or walk-in access properties. It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during a hunt to help put together patterns. The app also has helpful features that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. And there's a timber cut layer to help you find the right forest habitat for rough grouse. If you hunt in North Dakota, there's even a layer that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the many tools Onyx apps give you. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. So there's a possibility then for hunters, even if they're hearing something that we're about to discuss in your region that you plan on hunting, that it could be better than what we're about to tell you. And I would say for pheasant hunters this year, there are parts of the Midwest that had, you know, decent reports or numbers made have not looked great. And now that hunters are in the field, they're like, I don't know who did the reports. There are birds everywhere here. And I think there was another hatch that didn't appear and they weren't counted. Uh, you know, a lot of young birds that are out there. So um, the optimism, uh, at least from pheasant hunters, has been extraordinary this year. Let's hope that plays in when quail hunters get out in the field. Andy, can we start down in the southeast? I know that's an area that you yeah. know a lot about. Um, let's start in the southeast, work our way west, and then end northwest. Does that work for you guys? Sure. Absolutely, man. All right, Andy, let's let's take um, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, some of sure. those, um, those some states of those right there. Some those ones, yeah, absolutely. And, I, I, you know, I think Florida is a good one to start on. Uh, and we, we talked with Greg Hagen again, and, and, you know, Florida numbers are are pretty good historically compared to to other years they actually um kind of are looking at some positives down there um you know it always goes without saying basically that the areas that we're working and doing a whole lot of bobwhite management is going to be your best your best chances but you know particularly some some wmas and the panhandle central and southwest regions um are, are having you know good good success um, looks like kind of focusing on areas where they've done some management in the last 18 months, which is going to be the same across really any of the, the Bob White range where we've done management, keeping uh, early successional uh, communities, kind of plant communities uh, thriving. So, you know, if there's been a burn, if there's been a timber stand improvement, if there's been um, some thinning, that sort of thing, we're just getting some sunlight to the ground. In the last couple, three years, that's going to be best. But looking at, um, you know, if you're going there, check out the WMA um, specifics. There's some information actually on our on our website, my cheat sheet here. You can you can click on that link for WMAs. It might be an option in Florida. But I would say out of the southeast, Florida probably looks like one of our better states this year. But we've got some good numbers out of South Carolina as well. 
and the, both the Piedmont and down in the PD region in, in South Carolina or that coastal plain uh, in South Carolina look look favorable. Uh, Michael Hooks, our guy there that we always really lean on for information, but um, we've got people and, and bodies uh, out, uh, boots on the ground every day working in South Carolina that are seeing, you know, this is a similar number to last year, kind of like Chad alluded to, not um, not our best but it's uh, a similar year to, to 21. So if you had success out there um, last year in South Carolina, you know, probably look to your old traditional haunts, uh, but kind of are that those, Piedmont. Go ahead. Are, are those areas in the Southeast, are they, you know, like you said, it was similar to last year. Are they, do you think that's a stable population or is it trending up? Is it trending down? I, what are you seeing as yeah, a general I, quail outlook in the Southeast? I think, I think, and I'm not trying to be uh, elusive here, but I do think it's kind of very site dependent. So in South Carolina, um, we're focusing some management um, on those quail focal areas. And you can kind of look at those under the the South Carolina Bob White Initiative page. In those areas, we typically are showing um, a moderate increase each year uh, in the areas that are being managed outside of, you know, where, where populations aren't being or habitats not being managed for quail, uh, you're probably seeing declines. But focusing on those, you know, areas of management, and it doesn't have to be a quail focal area. And they actually point that out in South Carolina. There's some kind of areas that, you know, if you see, if you, if you're familiar with those, say through deer hunting or through turkey hunting, and you see active cutting going on or active, you know, forest management, try those for quail. Um, but in all those states in the southeast, if it's not being, you know, one of the things Chad talked about moisture in the in the prairies and in the west being a huge factor for for us in the east, uh, we typically don't have problems with too little rain. Um, we have problems with stuff getting overgrown because there's too much rain, and and so we're continuously managing to set back that uh, succession for for that more shrubby component that we're looking for, but. Um, I'd say the same for Georgia, where there's some great opportunities. There's actually still in Georgia, a lot of those wildlife management areas for quail are on the draw system. And there's still some opportunity there for, I looked this morning, actually, you can still apply for some quota hunts. I believe they may be uh, youth related, so youth only, um, that's still open. And and you can get in on those. And that's a chance where you can get a high-quality hunt. You'll, you'll have a great experience. It's not going to be overrun with hunters. Uh, you'll have a chance to move a couple coveys of birds, uh, particularly if you, you know, you're able to apply and take a kid along. You get a little more opportunity there. So, um, and, and you get the kid some great, great wild quail hunting experience in Georgia. So that's pretty neat. Um, didn't have a ton of bad weather in Georgia, but, uh, similar kind of fall cubby counts, um, you know, we're happening in mid-October, so that data is going to be on the Georgia DNR website. We don't have it, didn't have it for this um, forecast, but you'll be able to go and, and look now at their their data for, for fall covey counts. One, one little interesting one that I saw was Mississippi. Um, yeah, Rick Hamrick had a great report for us this year, and actually Mississippi numbers looked a little looked a little better than normal. So, uh, you know, if you've if you've got some connections in Mississippi or maybe have an idea of where to 
where to head out there, um, kind of in this in the southern portion of the state, saw an average increase of twenty five percent over hmm. over twenty one. So, um, a bird to bird and a half per call per listening station on their call counts. Um, so that that was pretty interesting. I thought kind of a a ray of sunshine coming out of Mississippi. They've got a lot of uh, new things going there. New director for the wildlife agency and and uh, kind of some some new uh, restored interest in quail. So when when you and I talked before we started recording, you you talked about some success stories from Quail Forever that you were excited about. Can you share what those are and where? Yeah, yeah, I can. And and gosh, it's it feels like drinking from a fire hose a little bit around here lately, uh, Travis. There's you know. In 2013, we put our first people on the ground in the southeast um, in Tennessee. And by the end of this year, we're going to have like 12 people in Tennessee. And uh, we, we've expanded all the way, you know, from the whole Bob White range. We're going to have over 100 people on the ground uh, as biologists, as, as, you know, habitat managers out there on the ground working for quail by the end of this year. So, that's pretty amazing, but in particular, bright spots would be we're putting what we call habitat teams on the ground, and those are people that are going out and, and doing burns, doing uh, timber stand improvements, uh, doing active management for quail. We're going to put we're putting a brand new one on the ground in Georgia. Um, we already have one on the ground in Arkansas. We're about to put one on in Tennessee. We've been hiring precision agriculture specialists who are working with um, farmers to not only kind of take, let's say, take marginal land out of production, but to convert it to, to wildlife habitat. We've got a bunch of biologists out there uh, through our working lands for wildlife program. We've put a new state coordinator in Texas, a new state coordinator in Tennessee. We're about to put one in Georgia. Um, it's just, uh, it's it's hard to kind of, narrow it down to to one bright spot but for the for the quail range even the western quail brand new state coordinator scott poppenberger in our in uh, arizona and new mexico so just lots and lots of growth not and, and i'm talking about people here but people end up creating habitat those people on the ground mm-hmm. create tons of habitat both public and private land uh and so we're we're really kind of at the exponential growth curve here for quail forever as far as it, it goes to affect here in the next two three years it's going to be amazing does that growth i mean can we celebrate the organization growing then quail forever as a whole that allows you to hire those biologists and have people working on the ground is that because the organization is growing that fast it is you know it i, I kind of routinely am able to say that we're the fastest growing uh, conservation nonprofit out there, and, and particularly the you know Pheasants Forever Incorporated, but particularly the quail side is just seeing a lot of emphasis placed through federal farm programs. Um, a lot of states that are really seeing uh, Pheasants Forever has a great model of success that we're able to lean on. You know, forty years of of getting habitat done in the Midwest, and so we're mm-hmm. able to point to that. But now success breeds success, so you know, great great relationships in Tennessee and in South Carolina and in Georgia, the states adjacent to those are like, oh, well, we want some of that. We, we like that idea. We, 
you, you, I didn't know you could do that. We didn't know Quail Forever could do that as an organization. And once we were able to kind of open the playbook and say, yeah, we, we're happy to come do that in, in other states as well. And so we just are filling in the grid. And we put our first people on the ground in Florida this year uh, and uh, have one person. John Mark has been working in Mississippi for several years, but we're going to have three uh, here soon in Mississippi. So just continuing to fill in the fill in the dots on the map and the gaps where quail are present. We're trying to work and expand populations that are there and both public and private land. So pheasants forever, the, the largest concentration of members I think is Minnesota. Um, for quail forever, where is your largest concentration of members? You know, I think traditionally we've, we've kind of had Missouri, uh, Illinois, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma. That's kind of the 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 greatest concentration. We're growing the southeast um, concentration as well. And members largely have been dependent on events. And of course, uh, our our past couple of years have been a little different for in person meetings. But we're getting back on the train. Actually, um, been several banquets in the last few days, and one tomorrow night in in Nashville uh, for Quail Forever. So we're we're back in full swing on on banquets now. So you'll see an increase on that. We're actually up over our last couple, four years, I believe we're, we're kind of back to our 2018 numbers already in both pheasants and quail forever. Outstanding. So if somebody listening says, I want a quail chapter, quail forever chapter in my area, how do they go about starting it? Man, that's, that's a, a great question. And I did that for years and years. So I kind of got a knowledge of that, but you, you can't, you know, go to our website, find your regional representative. They can obviously, you know, if you're interested in starting a pheasant or a quail chapter, you, an easy way is to, Hey, give me, I'll give you my email address. It's, it's a Edwards at quail forever.org. Um, we can get you in touch with the right people. So uh, we would love to talk to you. There's not a upfront cost or anything like that. It's just a commitment to, to get an event going and and make a difference locally. And that's only for if you want to start a chapter, would Andy give out his personal contact information? That's that's you right. ladies, he's taken. Do not reach out <laughs> right now. He is he is a family man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All yeah. right, let's yeah. jump up. Let's head north. We covered that southeast corner there. Let's head up into your neck of the woods, Andy. Tennessee, Missouri, Illinois. Indiana and and what are you seeing or what do you anticipate hunters to see this year in that area? I, I think uh, you know you've kind of heard the theme, but similar to last year, Tennessee is growing. We've got several um, quail focal areas, but quite a few of those are actually closed to, due to some research that's going on, and it's looking great. The research is showing some really positive numbers and positive impacts from management, but they're still going to be closed a couple more years. But there's some. West Tennessee, uh, it was where I would focus. Uh, middle and West Tennessee is where I would focus primarily around cropland, looking again for that shrubby cover. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go across the river to Missouri and say that there's some areas there. Missouri did a pretty good, um, you know, they did actually a really good job being detailed in their report for us. And so they lay out several areas, um, you know, that were, that we're going to be bright spots, best bets. Uh, Beth, Beth Emmerich has uh, given us some north central and northwestern Missouri. And, uh, but then you should look, you know, check out 
that's a pretty long uh, explanation and, and pretty detailed account in Missouri for our our quail hunting. And it looks like it starts um, starts November first. So you're you know a day away from that opening in in Missouri, but um, numbers are stable, not not you know significantly higher than last year. But, well, I'm looking uh, at the Northwest Prairie region mm-hmm. in Missouri, and right. it says it's up 243 percent from last year. That was that was the bright spot for sure, and uh, I think that's a that's a pretty high number. Two point one, so an average of 2.18 quail per route compared to 0. 0.64 uh, last year was a pretty low number. But but that's kind of online with their traditional um, traditional numbers. So that Northwestern Prairie. Uh, is a is a pretty great uh pretty great area <laughs> if if you were going to concentrate on that but they've look got at a you lot look really at you awesome. holding out you're not giving that that big number because that's <laughs> yeah. where you're hunting isn't it no 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 <laughs> you know and Missouri's a pretty awesome deal they got a really you know really inexpensive um license for out of staters so if you're going through there you know if you're coming like me if you're coming from the southeast or the east and you're heading out to the prairie states to maybe go on a dual purpose hunt for pheasant and quail try you know don't leave missouri out check it out um they've got a lot of really nice um areas that that they focus on quail management yeah that's uh, one of the things that i uh i hate to jump in but that's one of the things that i i discovered about missouri not long after i i first started working for qf was i had never hunted missouri before and so i went up there on a on a hunt. And I was impressed by both the numbers of WMAs that they have, the numbers of public hunting areas that they have, and the quality of those public hunting areas. Uh, you know, it, they uh, they do a lot of habitat work on them. But the, the cool thing for me was like, if if you if you do travel to Missouri to quail hunt, uh, Missouri is actually also a pretty good state to shoot woodcock in. If, if you catch the migration right at this, at the right time, I think that, I don't know exactly when their woodcock season ends. It's like November 15th or something like that. But the, mm-hmm. the first time I ever shot woodcock was actually on a quail hunt in Missouri. Hmm. That's interesting. Yep. Well, I, I'm looking, Andy, as we've, as we, you know, that Northwest area of Missouri, North central Missouri, obviously Southern Iowa, Southwest Iowa. I mean, those are, uh, areas that I, th- I feel like hunters can get excited about this year, right? I th- yeah, absolutely. That, that, that Iowa number, um, those, the South, <clears throat> excuse me, that Southern tier of, uh, of Iowa is really looking like, um, and it says their statewide index is just below the 10 year average, but there's some bright spots, um, in that, in that Southern tier, um, it says top roadside counts in 22 came from Adair, Adams, Fremont, Page, and Ringgold counties. Um, and I think they're they're breaking it down again really well for us. Southwest is Iowa is kind of considered the stronghold, but it's not. Um, you know, it's it's actually uh, let's see, 1.69 and 21 to 4.38 quail uh, per route this year. So. Long-term average is 1.32, so that that's looking really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, uh, you know, based on a mild winter uh, and didn't have any ice storms to kind of really um, drop the numbers down, which is what we see when you're on that northern extent of the quail range. Uh, if you get ice or if you get a long, you know, a blizzard with a ton of deep snow that sticks around for a long time. And so mild winters, 
um, bring about you know better quail numbers in those areas. So um, looking looking good. Uh, same thing for South Central. Uh, it's above uh, above the long term average and South Central as well. So yeah, I I think man we're talking pheasant and quail a little bit here and i think that'd be a, another great state where you could go um go check it out love it before we switch over to chad in the west um are there anything any areas in say indiana or kentucky or illinois uh, that jump out to you andy you know I would say this, you know, the southern half to southern third of Indiana and Illinois would be where you would concentrate. Uh, there, there weren't great numbers out of Indiana or Illinois, but you know, Kentucky, the western two thirds of the state, um, is is where you're going to typically focus. They've got some great, um, they've got some great wildlife management areas that are focusing on quail. I always think kind of a Peabody wildlife management area. Um, it's tough, but there are birds there. Chad mentioned earlier those those sunflowers, max million sunflowers kind of abound at Peabody and they hold birds, but it's tough hunting. Uh, Clay WMA in northeast Kentucky and Rockcastle River WMA in southeast Kentucky are the, along with Peabody, are where Cody Roden, are, they're, they're, wildlife or their small game biologist is, is recommending for now. Um, but traditionally Kentucky can be great. There's a lot of small fields and rolling hills and, um, kind of hunting those fence rows and looking for brushy cover on private land can, can produce birds. Got it. Chad, um, let's jump into a couple of places that I feel like as a Minnesota upland bird hunter, I hear a lot of people that go, down to Nebraska and Kansas to hunt for quail. Those are, in my opinion, two uh, places that really get hunted a lot for traveling quail hunter that want to go after them because of the close proximity to the Midwest, upper Midwest, I, I should say. I have been hearing really mixed reports from terrible drought conditions, no birds, to, wow, there are a lot of quail here this year. And I'm guessing you've been hearing similar yeah, it's it's hard to kind of get a handle on specifically, for example, Nebraska. Uh, so, like like I said, I was up there this weekend, and uh, uh, I got checked. Uh, my license got checked by uh, the the county game warden up there on this the second morning, and so we're sitting there and we're talking, and and he said that, uh, and all the people that he had checked um, opening day, he had only seen three quail in the bag, and and so he said yeah, it had been fairly tough for quail. And that may be skewed a bit in the fact that I think that a lot of people out opening weekend are probably focusing on pheasants, but also I think it speaks to kind of the mixed, uh, success aspect of, of the region this year. Um, for example, I, I hunted, uh, in, I have some spots in sort of South central Nebraska that I have, have, have found over the years. Uh, it's a mix of WMA and open fields and water sites. And that in years past that I have, have, had pretty good luck finding birds on. And so I, I didn't do any pre-scouting this year. Uh, I just sort of drove up there blind. And of the the spots that I traditionally hunt that first weekend, four of them um, didn't have any cover at all. You know, it, it's been so dry up there that, you know, that they've been grazed or, or hayed. And so of those, those six, you know, four of them just, just didn't have the cover for birds this year. And the other two, 
did have cover, but you know, had, had hunters on it, had, you know, had pheasant hunters on it. And, and so I had to kind of freelance a little bit. I had to drive around and, uh, and, and try to, to find some new spots. And, and in, in the areas where I, I found uh, on the areas that had habitat that had enough cover for birds, I found birds. I, I thought the covey numbers tended to be a little bit, uh, the number of birds in the coveys tended to be a little bit smaller than in years past. Um, and in, in some areas, I didn't find any birds at all. So it's like, I, I think it's really dependent on, on where you go. Um, I talked to one of our board members yesterday who hunted Southeast Nebraska and, and did fairly well in, in the Eastern part of the state, specifically the Southeastern part of the state got a lot more rain this year than the, the Western and West Central and South Central parts of the state. And I think that that's probably going to be reflected in the number of birds that people find in those areas. Um, in, in central Nebraska, I think that it's just going to be very, very much localized in terms of where you find birds. It's going to depend on if they happen to get, you know, on the plains, a lot of times it's like the difference can be one storm, you know, one rainstorm It's like one area, mm-hmm. uh, will, will, will get just enough rain to instigate some growth and some cover and five miles away in the exact same region, you know, you drive five miles and they didn't get anything. And so, you know, flexibility, I think is really the key when you get out into the plains to find birds and and you can't really, I mean, you can make generalizations, but you also have to like really, you know, burn some, burn some gas and, and go find birds. And so this year in Nebraska, I think that's probably going to be true. The farther West you go generally in Nebraska, uh, the drier it's going to, and I think that, but you can find birds there, you know, um, you know, some of the open fields and water sites that, that I hunted had really good cover, um, and some didn't. So you just have to have to have the flexibility to just kind of move around and, and, uh, be able to change your plans at a minute's notice. I love my dog. And like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good for life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog Daisy. Nutrisource high performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Hunting season is here, and North Dakota is one of my favorite places to spend a fall day. That's because North Dakota is a bird hunting paradise. You can hunt both waterfowl and upland birds all in the same day, and North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting. This year, North Dakota has a population estimate of 3.4 million breeding ducks, which is 38% above the long-term average, and their prairie pothole region is smack dab in the middle of the central flyway. Their spring water index also came way up, over 600% from last year's drought. The habitat on the landscape looks great, and bird reports are strong throughout the state. With a little scouting, you just might find yourself in a field surrounded by wild flushing pheasants, sharp-tailed grouse, and Hungarian partridge. Plan a legendary bird hunt this fall in North Dakota at legendarynd.com. If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. 
They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. Let's head. Let's move south into Kansas, there, Chad. I I feel like you're going to be repeating what you just said about Nebraska in Kansas, based on just where that drought <laughs> hammered it, right? Yeah, and it's it's going to be this actually the same thing for Oklahoma as well. Uh, yeah, in Kansas, so I live fairly close to the Kansas border, so I probably hunt Kansas. Uh, as much than as I do Oklahoma. So the, Kansas this year is, is the exact same thing. The farther west you go, uh, the drier it's going to be, the harder it's going to be to find birds, and the more sporadic those populations of birds are going to be. Uh, central Kansas this year is is kind of the, the place to be. Uh, well, central Kansas in the Flint Hills region um, saw a big increase in the number of birds. Uh, but the Smoky Hills region, uh, that whole central, north central area of Kansas is probably where you're going to want to concentrate your efforts this year, uh, which like, for example, like the, the Southwest part of the state, which is where I live or where I'm close to. And I hunt the Southwest part of the state quite a bit. They were very dry this year and it's going to be a lot harder to find birds and it's going to be a lot harder to find habitat for those birds. A lot of the walk-in areas this year in Kansas, I think are probably going to reflect the reality of, of the drought. And so when you find those areas, you just have to, to get in the truck and, and go find another one. Uh, so it's, it's, but, but birds are going to be, I mean, there are birds there to be had. So I, I wouldn't discourage anyone from, from not going hunting just because of a, a of a dismal report in, in one region. I feel Chad, like, I think you're bringing up a good, uh, a good point there a couple of times, and maybe it's worth reiterating that we talked about this, um, before, but don't be afraid to kind of pop out, try a spot for half an hour to an hour. And if it's not producing like head on out and go somewhere else, yeah. like don't, don't waste a bunch of time in a day. You know, just like you said, it could be because of those rains that they got in May. It could be, it's already been hunted, but just be willing to move around. Yeah. I think that's the key real, especially for, for quail. Uh, because just like this, this past weekend, I mean, if, if I had gone off, uh, if I had based, you know, the, the weekend on my initial impression Saturday morning on the spots that I typically and historically hunted, I probably would have just come home, you know, <laughs> because it was pretty, it was pretty dismal, but you know, I got in the truck and got on on X and started looking around for some areas. I had to, to spend a little bit more or burn a little bit more gas than I, and spend a little bit more time than I had anticipated. But I got out of that area right there and got into some other areas that obviously had either not been grazed as heavily or had gotten a little bit of rain. And that's where I found birds. So, so yeah, you, Andy's exactly right. You know, you, you can't invest too much of your precious time into one area. Uh, be, be willing to, to, to hop in the truck and, and go. Oklahoma hammered by yeah, drought. That, you know, Oklahoma is a weird, uh, kind of state. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's supposed to be, you know, when, when you look at the report, it, all indications are that we're going to have a season that's a lot like, that was a lot like last year. And the last year was, it was okay. You know, I mean, th there were a few birds around. It was uh, not great hunting, but not horrible hunting. And, 
we've been in the part of the state where I live, we've been very dry this year. You know, we, we got a little bit of rain early and then we got a long stretch where we didn't get any rain and we're, we're still kind of in that dry kind of pattern. Uh, I think I saw something on, on one of our Mesonet sites a couple of weeks ago that we've, in my part of the state, we've, we've had something like 30 days without, uh, a quarter inch of rain, you know, so, so we are very dry on the other hand, uh, just anecdotally, and uh, I have seen m- probably more more broods of quail this year than I did last year. So I- I'm cautiously optimistic that Oklahoma is going to have an okay quail season. I can't go any better than that. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there are going to be quail to to be found if you can get out there and look for them. Uh, one thing I noticed is that the, like the Northeastern part of the state saw an increase in the number of quail. Um, however, that is not typically the, um, you know, the, the traditional quail hunting part of the state. Generally speaking in, in Oklahoma, if you want to find quail, especially on public land, you're probably going to have to concentrate West of I-35. Uh, that's where the majority of our, um, public land is, our, our big WMAs where you find quail. And that's where most of the suitable habitat is. Uh, and I, we have been very, the southwest part of the state especially has been very dry this year. So I think numbers are going to be down a little bit down there. Uh, northwest part of the state where I am, I do think that numbers are going to be a little bit negatively affected by the uh, by the lack of rain that we've had. But on the other hand, you know, the, the WMAs, the cover on the WMAs is not bad uh, on some of the WMAs anyway. And so I think that there will be some decent bird numbers on on the Debbie Mays if you're willing to walk for them. Yeah, I'm looking at just the quail by the numbers here for Oklahoma. And it, I feel like the last couple of years, um, there's some areas that are right in that area. I mean, some are up, some are down a little bit, but just slightly below the 10-year average that we're hoping for. Um, and yeah. obviously that can, the amazing thing about quail is how quickly they can rebound. If we all of a sudden get a good moisture year, boom, they just uh, explode. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and that's the, uh, I apologize for my, my dog barking there in the background. Uh, and that is the, the thing about quail is that if you get one good year, they can absolutely rebound. Uh, we've seen that in years past here. I, I think 2017 was one of those years where we just had really, really good numbers of quail because we had one really good spring for, for quail production. And then, you know, the next year it can, it can tank. So it's such an oscillation. Uh, from from year to year, you know, and Texas is a good example of that. You know, in Texas this year, the, it's not looking so great. Um, you know, the uh, probably the the place to be for quail hunting this year in Texas is going to be the the southern part of Texas. South Texas um, is, I think, has the the best numbers. Uh, the Rolling Plains region, which is kind of the stronghold of 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 quail numbers in Texas, is looking really really pretty pretty poor this year. And it's, it's due to that drought, you know, it's a, like in, in Oklahoma, um, that Southwest part of the state is the, the part that was most affected by drought. And that sort of extended on into Texas. And that rolling plains region is, uh, is, is adjacent to that. And so you're seeing the effects of that drought in that area, the high plains region, the Texas panhandle, same thing, you know, Western Oklahoma, Texas panhandle, you're looking at pretty dry conditions and you're looking at a lot less available habitat and cover for birds. 
Well, I think that is a good um, overview of Bobcat or Bobcat Bob White Quail. Uh, as we cross the border into New Mexico and Arizona, um, Chad, I know you have a, a passion for some of those desert quail too. Um, what's a scaled quail outlook look like in New Mexico? I've been hearing a lot of optimism that even though Bob White numbers in that drought area are, you know, not pleasing the scaled quail are, might just make up for it well yeah it's hard to tell you know with with the desert quail in new mexico uh it, in new mexico the, the desert quail and, and and the montezuma quail are an interesting thing because you know that the montezuma quail depend on monsoon rains the desert mm-hmm. quail depend on rains as well but they come at different times of the year and so you know the the rains that that will benefit the desert quail are not necessarily the rains that will benefit Montezuma quail because they they come at different times. And I, I'm probably oversimplifying that a lot, but, uh, it, it, in New Mexico, you know, it, it's the, the Southwest part of the state, I think has probably gotten the most rainfall. Um, and in that area, I think that, that gambles quail and scaled quail are looking a little bit better. The Southeastern part of New Mexico is, has been pretty dry. And I think that in that area, you're probably going to see lower quail numbers reflected in, in the reality of that. Um, in, in terms of Montezuma quail, um, New Mexico, and they've been, and let me preface this by saying that, you know, New Mexico and Arizona, the entire Southwest really has been in a prolonged drought over the past few years. And so, you know, numbers are are quite a bit lower than long-term averages to begin with. So, so these numbers are, while they're, they're higher, then, then in years past, they're still lower than where they historically would be. So Montezuma quail numbers in, in New Mexico, I think, are going to benefit from those beneficial rains that came at the right time. Uh, and I think that in, in, in southwest New Mexico, I think that you will see that reflected in, in their numbers. Southeast and in the eastern part of the state, northeastern New Mexico, uh, where hopefully I, I was hopefully wanting to do some some more hunting in, in northeastern New Mexico this year just to kind of see because I've, I've not hunted that region much I don't think that this is going to be a great year for that uh, so it's, it's going to be very very spotty I think in New Mexico and in Arizona as well is there a bird that handles the drought better out of those different quail species I boy now you're getting into a biologist question it's <laughs> yeah, okay it. if you can pass you can pass hey, if you want don't go shifting it over here because I don't know either. <laughs> I, I would think, you know, um, I, I would think that scaled quail are are yeah. probably you know scaled and gambled. The, the desert quail birds could probably handle drought a little bit better uh, than Montezuma quail because Montezuma quail, from what I'm told by biologists, are so dependent on those monsoon rains for their uh, not only for what they eat, you know, because they're primarily. Uh, uh, you know, tuber eaters, you know, they're, they're diggers mm-hmm. and, uh, and the, the, the food sources that they rely on are, are relying upon those rains. Whereas I think scale quail and gamble quail are maybe a little bit more generalist. And again, I'm probably mangling this. So I, if I were to guess, I would say that gambles and scale quail probably could weather drought a little bit better than, than Montezuma quail. Right. I would agree. Moving on then let's head North. Let's go to Utah. Anything in Utah, wet your fancy. Is that even a saying, by the way? Did I did I tickle your I fancy? Know. Is that yeah? Yeah. Wet your whistle, tickle your fancy. Wet your whistle, but, hey, tickle you know. your fancy. There you go. <laughs> you made it your own. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, you know, Utah is one of those states, and full disclosure, Utah is a state that I have not hunted yet, and I really want to get out there and hunt it because it's such an interesting state. Uh, you know, you don't think of Utah typically as as an upland state and, and as a quail state, uh, but they do have some pretty decent numbers of Gamble's quail and California uh, quail. Well, maybe mm-hmm. not California quail, but Gamble's quail yeah. for sure. No, they have California as well. Uh, and, and, and do the uh, okay, and so you know a, again, kind of the same story. Um, you know, the West is is in a prolonged drought, and I think that you're going to find that you you will find areas where you'll be able to to find some birds, and, and other areas where you where you won't. Um, I, I'm not sure, you know how how successful you're going to be in some of those areas that uh, that haven't had rain. Um, you know, the gambles quail count was a little bit up from last year. So, so that's encouraging. Um, I, I think that there's probably some pretty decent options for public land hunters, uh, on some of the WMAs there. So I I think it's going to be a mixed bag in Utah. Just, and I think that's probably going to be sort of the same song, different verse for a lot of the Western states. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Looking here, there's an insider tip that says, look for uh, gambles in the brushy washes of Western Washington County. So that's a, it's a pretty specific mm. area there, but um, yeah, it looks like Gambles and California both, but then it's not open to scaled uh, in the, in Utah. Is there a certain part in Idaho or a certain region that generally is kind of like that is where you would want to target for quail in Idaho? You know, I think that the southwest part of the state is is a is a part of the state where a lot of people key in on. Um, and in that part of the state, winter was, was fairly mild. Uh, and so I think that if you're, if you're looking for quail in, in Idaho, uh, probably the Southwest part of the state would be the place to look for it. Yep. You know, it's, it's been years since I did this, but we did a multi-species hunt up there that was pretty amazing. We flew into, flew into Boise, hunted, uh, valley quail and pheasant, and then went up into Hell's Canyon and we got, uh, rough grouse, blue grouse, Huns and uh, got laughed at by some chuckers, uh, but uh, it was a pretty amazing deal, you know, to get five species within just a couple of days and uh, really um, just in a couple of different areas there. So it's a it's a a great state for upland birds. When yeah. people ask me, you know, if there's one place that you would go back to or that I have to see before I'm done hunting, where would it be? I pretty much always say Idaho. Uh, the landscape is incredible. The variety of birds, the amount of birds you can come across when you really get into them. It's just absolutely spectacular. I know there's a couple others. Bill Shirk has hunted out in Idaho a couple of times and he's had his best quail hunting ever out there. Um, it's just a truly special, special place. And I, I know that weather obviously can have a big impact and obviously habitat is number one. But um, from what I've seen... And I've hunted quail in Oklahoma and, you know, different places that have big time quail numbers. Um, And Idaho ranks up there with them too. And so definitely put Idaho on your list. Um, But I have not hunted in Oregon or Washington. Would I expect similar quail hunting in those two states, guys? Well, I, I, that's a good question. And it's it's one that, uh, I'm, I'm going to find out this year. I'm actually going, I have not hunted Oregon. And so next month 
uh, I am going out there and hunting with Ben Bredigan from from Onyx, and we're going to do a little film on it. And so we're going to see what what Oregon mountain quail and valley quail hunting is is all all about. Um, so, but I think that Oregon is one of those states. You get to the western states, and for for quail hunters, I, I think you're right. You know, you they they tend to to think more about you know the the Bob White states or the Southwest states in in terms of of quail hunting opportunity. But the western states, uh, specifically, you know, Oregon, Washington, California, have some really good opportunities. And Oregon is is a, a pretty good example of that. Um, you know, the, the west side of Oregon uh, is is generally mountain quail territory. The the eastern side of Oregon is is primarily valley quail. And uh, in in Oregon this year, I I think according to the you know the the forecast, Oregon had a fairly mild winter uh, with with not a lot of of snowfall, and I think that uh, that mountain quail numbers probably responded well to that. And so uh, we're going to find out this uh, this December. Oh, you're going to have a heck of a good time hunting with Ben. I'm actually, I'm going to hunt with him on his trip back across as he comes back towards, because Ben and I live, not joking, one quarter of a mile from each other. Oh, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And so we have not, hunt, well, we hunted rough grouse in Wisconsin early season, but he's on the road a lot. I'm on the road a lot. And we're going to meet up, I think in Montana in December on his trip back after he hunts with you out there, Chad. So, uh, take it easy on him. I don't want him all tuckered out, but, um, <laughs> no, you, you guys are in for one heck of a good hunt. He doesn't mess around. He finds birds or they find him one or the other, but we yeah, always end well, up. He's, uh, I hunted with him last year in Kansas, uh, doing a, a similar film on scouting for Bob whites. And he, uh, his pointer Amos, uh, put on a show last year. So, and he's only gotten better. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. really Hap, uh, you know, I'm I'm excited to see Amos run again. Yeah. Oh, he's gotten better. That dog is amazing. Mm. Um, let's wrap this up. How about if you guys? I'll, I'll ask each of you this question. It'll be our final one. If if there were, if you had five days off or a week to go hunt quail somewhere in America, where are you going to hunt this year and why? Oh boy, that's a tough one. Wow. Uh, hmm. I'd have to think about that for a second. Uh, Andy, do you want to go first? Or do you want me to? You know, I, I think uh, if you've got if you've got some uh, nearly inexpensive gas to spend, uh, and, and <laughs> yeah, prices and gas is not an object here. Um, yeah, that's right. I'm paying for this trip. You want You're the paying? best? Oh, quail, yeah, you want the best quail hunt you can get this year. Where are you going? You know, I think it comes back to kind of what you're looking for, but I. I, I experienced the southwest hunts last year for the first time and it'd be hard not to say i want to go back there and try it but with numbers being what they are i might i might head to i might head out to idaho for a mountain quail hunt or or oregon uh for a multi-species hunt because you know the west of course if you're an easterner the west holds a lot of uh mystique for you because it's somewhere different and uh we we aren't even touching on species like chucker and uh, and pheasants kind of in, in the most, for the most part. So I might head West. Um, but for quail, gosh, it'd be hard not to hit that Missouri, Iowa line, uh, not to go to the smoky Hills or the Flint Hills in Kansas. So those would be my, my, my top quails destinations, I think. Chad? Yeah. 
Now, now, are you, are you talking if um, I just had five days off and I wanted to go based on the quail report this year or just my 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 dream hunt? Well, let's do both. <laughs> <laughs> my my dream hunt would be so one of the states that I've um, always been kind of intrigued by because it is, I think, the only state where you can can take four species of quail is New Mexico. And it's a bit of an underrated state in that I think it has similar quail hunting to Arizona, but doesn't get quite as much pressure as what Arizona mm-hmm. does. And uh, there are areas of that state where you can conceivably, theoretically anyway, take four species of quail in a single day or a single trip. And so my dream hunt would be to to do that. It's like, I, I've always wanted to try that. And New Mexico is just a, a just a beautiful and, and photogenic state anyway. So it's just a, it's a fantastic place to spend time, even if you're not shooting birds. So if I were, if I was just doing a, a, a dream hunt, I think that I'd try for the New Mexico slam is that's, that's one of my bucket list. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm just strictly going off of, of quail numbers this year, um, and I wanted to, to kind of maximize my my chances of, of taking birds, I, I would, I would probably concentrate on central Kansas, um, to Southeast Nebraska. I think, I think it's kind of a a little bit of a sleeper region. Uh, but I think that they've got good quail numbers, good enough quail numbers to make a trip out there. Love it. I've got New Mexico on my list of places that I've not hunted that I really, really, really want to go and experience because I've done Arizona a couple of times. And uh, like you guys mentioned, it is it's a stunning place. But New Mexico, like you said, Chad, is an underrated upland bird hunting destination and that many quail and that kind of a landscape that that intrigues me. The only thing that doesn't intrigue me about it, snakes. I'm tired yeah. of rattlesnakes. I don't want to see another rattlesnake, uh, but that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother time. Gentlemen, I appreciate all of your wisdom. I hope it benefits some of our listeners today that they take advantage of it. They get out there. And if you love hunting for pheasants, you love hunting for grouse, you love hunting for chucker, you'll love hunting for quail too. It's an, it's an addictive explosion. There's nothing like a covey rise um, exploding in front of a dog or in front of you. And, uh, they're a delicious bird too. So, uh, any parting thoughts, gentlemen, Andy? (laughs) No, Travis, I think that was well said. I I, I think you mentioned it a little bit and alluded to it, but if, if you're a upland bird hunter at all, you gotta, you gotta experience quail if you haven't. And, um, you know, for us, I think the experience is, uh, about the places and about the people that you meet along the way. And so drag somebody along if, if they haven't been and they show an interest, uh, get them out there behind your dog and, and, uh, get them to enjoy it just as much as you do. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, that one of the appeals about quail hunting for me is it gives me the opportunity to go places and to see things and to experience things that I wouldn't really otherwise do. Um, you know, it's, and I don't want to make the, the pheasant hunters angry at me, but I, I think that it's it's a little bit less of a homogenous experience than pheasant hunting because it's so varied. 
Um, yes. you know, because a, a, a quail hunt in Oklahoma or Kansas or Nebraska is a totally different animal than a quail hunt in say New Mexico or Arizona. And it's totally, mm-hmm. it's a different quail hunt than, than say Florida or Georgia. And so you have this opportunity to have a, a vastly different experience while chasing the same bird or same type of bird, uh, that I don't know that you get with any other upland game bird. And I think that's probably one of its, its unique qualities. And I think that's why quail hunters really have a tendency to, to I think, travel more than a little bit more than other hunters is mm-hmm. that, uh, that experiential aspect of, of putting yourself outside your, your normal comfort zone. I 100% agree. Gentlemen, enjoy your hunting season. Thanks again for all the information. You can learn more at quailforever.org. On behalf of Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, everyone here at The Flush, we thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Flush Podcast. Mm -hmm.